Hi guys, welcome to Jules and Phoebe, the weekly pop culture and social commentary podcast brought to you by yours truly, Jules and Phoebe. Phoebe, how are you? Hello, I am good, thank you. It has been a full-on week. How are you doing? Last week was awful. Yes. Awful. I think when we recorded the podcast, you know, it wasn't that bad. Like mentally I was fine, but then I just deteriorated as the week went on. And then by the weekend, it was awful. But I'm feeling a bit better now. How are you? Yeah, I'm interested to hear you say that. I was speaking to a friend, a white friend, at the end of last week. And I just said, you know what, I feel really drained from this week. I can't imagine what it feels like to be directly impacted by everything that has gone on in the media and in society, basically, as a whole over the past X amount of days. Obviously, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's deaths have really exacerbated situation. I'm sure you didn't just learn about racism on the 25th of May, like you've been experiencing it your whole life. But I think it's been a very sudden enlightening period for a lot of white people who maybe hadn't had to think about this in such stark terms before now. Yeah, it's a combination of a lot of things. So whenever you have people galvanized in this way, it's usually many different factors coming together. So we are living through a pandemic right now. And in terms of the UK, it is black people who are disproportionately infected and disproportionately dying of COVID-19. In general, of course, people are losing their jobs. There's so much job insecurity in general. So I think you've got that as the backdrop. And then, of course, you've got the police brutality and violence and murder of black people in the US that has gone viral there's so many different factors like Brexit. There's so much going on that I think has led to where we are today. Mm -hmm. So obviously what's happened in the US, I think is massive. But what I always try to say, so a few people have been calling me, asking me how I am about events in the US. And I always respond with, yes, what's happening in the US is awful, but this is global. Mm -hmm. We have issues in this country as well it's really tough because it's not just what's happening in the US. You then start thinking about your own life and it's really been very, very difficult. And I'm very grateful for the listeners of this podcast who have just been so open to our discussions, so open to listening, so open to learning, people from all different backgrounds. That has been positive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think as well, to your point, we are exposed to relentless news now in a way that previous generations never have been and so news is on your phone it's on your television like there is no escaping from it and it feels as though probably part of what has been so exhausting and what has been so traumatic as you've said is the fact that there is a relentlessness to this information it's inundated you there's always something new coming out it's that I found out during the week that George Floyd's mother died two years ago. So suddenly I'm now thinking about that video and I'm thinking about him calling out for his mother and I'm thinking about that in a very different light. We are very voyeuristic at times and it seems as though we are craving new details constantly. And I think sometimes it begs the question of like, how much of this is constructive to the conversation and how much of this is just because we're nosy and 
we demand to know. Does George Floyd's daughter really have to sit down with a news interview? There was a clip I saw on Instagram earlier, like George Floyd's daughter speaks out. Well, she's six. So maybe Mm. you shouldn't be getting her to speak out just because you need a new angle on this, you know? Something I found out a few days ago, and I didn't pick it up initially, was that George Floyd was actually positive for COVID-19. Did you know that the autopsy report? No, I didn't know that. Wow. And you're like, wow, if this didn't kill you, the virus might have ended up killing you. Yeah. That is very, very tough. The biggest challenge for me, because I have not obviously not been shocked by, you know, I'm not shocked by racism and all of that. But a lot of the time, just for you to function, you know, it's not something I think about on a regular basis. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it might look like that, guys. But this is not <laughs> something I think about on a re- you know on a regular basis. You know, I have so many other things that usually occupy my mind. What I found really challenging is just seeing younger people. So, you know, people that are just starting out their career and just seeing sort of how demoralized they feel. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a young graduate who kind of shared his experience of racism and, you know, and anti-blackness. And it really impacted me because I thought, wow, I don't want my kid to feel this way about something he cannot control. Mm-hmm. And the challenge I had is that he phrased it like basically being black is so hard. And my message is, Yes, of course, you know, dealing with racism and microaggressions on a daily basis is very tough. But my message is that it's really white supremacy that is draining. Mm -hmm. It's really white supremacy that is making your life difficult. It's not the fact that you happen to be black or, you know, happen to be from, you know, a different country and living in the UK. You have to not kind of internalize it as if it's your fault and it's something you are suffering from. And then you go to your white colleagues and it's basically like when white people go and watch a slave movie and then the next minute they're having some banter. Like I remember in secondary school, I think we were in secondary school, we went to watch Hotel Rwanda. Oh yeah. And it was me. It was a friend of mine, a black girl, family from Jamaica. And then it was our white friend. I think she was from Ireland. (laughs) Do not make me take responsibility. (laughs) We watched Hotel Rwanda you know, for those of you that don't know, it's basically about the genocide in Rwanda. And we were horrified. We were so horrified by this. And then our white friend is like, oh yeah, guys, what are we doing this weekend? Are we going shopping? Oh God. And I was so traumatized that I actually did an assembly in my school about genocide. After this, I was like, what can I do? And I went to school and I did an assembly. Wow. I was so traumatized by what I'd seen obviously maybe I could relate to it just a bit more than I had more empathy for these people and what they went through and our white friend was like okay cool next wow I think there's a conversation to be had for say the people who are maybe just now taking a more active interest in this space interest is the wrong word but you know what I mean that are now maybe just starting on their education journey that there's an argument to be made for like, okay, you know what, you can do things imperfectly to begin with, but please use a bit of common sense here. No one is expecting you to have unlearned it all immediately. And that's absolutely fine. Like I am unlearning things all the time. I have said before the the background that I grew up in, the exposure that I've had to different ethnicities, different skin colors, different religions even, was much later in life for me. So you're obviously unlearning things at an ongoing pace. However, 
while you're being given that leeway, let's just use a bit of common sense. Like the things that I've heard slip out of some people's mouths over the past couple of weeks have really surprised me in how well-meaning they are intended, but how problematic they are at their core. Um, Example? I'm going to struggle with an example a little bit because what I want to say is the example from my work. I guess things like talking about, you know, I love ethnic food. Also, I guess in a more, I I obviously, I can't give the example that I want to give on this podcast right now. DM me if you want to know. But (laughs) what I've noticed a lot of is people centering themselves in this movement. This is not the time for you to be talking about how sad you are as a white person that this has happened, because this is not the time for your fragility as such. This is a time for your action. Right. Absolutely. And we are going to dive into all of that. We have got our first podcast guest and we are about to go into how you can be an ally right now, how you can stop centering yourself and how you can get into the field and do some work because that's what's required right now. So excited. Super excited. And I think for me, I was so I was really traumatized, like hearing this young guy talk about his experiences. And so my action was young people struggling with corporate life, reach out to me. Mm -hmm. If you need advice or you want someone to mentor you, reach out to me. The challenge is I put that on LinkedIn, but I don't think I have any young people on my LinkedIn. (laughs) (laughs) I put it on my LinkedIn. I put it on my Instagram. I'm like looking for the people. But then somebody did share a link with me to the Amos Bursary, which is an organization and they do provide mentoring services for young black people. So I'm going to sign up to that because I just felt like, wow, as an older person in our organization, like I've dropped the ball if Mm -hmm. this young man doesn't feel like he's got someone that he can go to. But that's also my anxiety because when I get very stressed, I go into like superwoman mode. I'm like, oh, I'm just going to fix everything. So Mm -hmm. obviously that's not really a logical thought. It's not my fault, but I'm holding myself accountable. I also want to be a part of the solution. So that's one thing I've done. I'm trying to do. I want to ask a question and feel free to say that you don't want to talk about this. But when we talk about corporate, predominantly white, which they often are, settings, do you think that it is more palatable for white people or people in power, people in seniority positions, if there are sentiments like that expressed, like, oh, sometimes I hate being black? Do you think that that is not a symptom, but do you think that when pain is expressed in that way, it makes it more palatable for white people as opposed to, listen, I don't hate being black, but I hate the way you treat me because I'm black? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think people are a lot more comfortable, sadly, with that kind of sad sob story Mm -hmm. than they are with someone like Lewis Hamilton, who's lighting up Twitter or lighting up Instagram saying, I'm black, I'm proud. I've had these experiences, but they have made me stronger. You know, especially now him being so successful, I don't think it makes people comfortable. Yeah. But if they can now put you in that position of charity. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That is very, very comfortable. Oh, let me help you. This is very, very comfortable. And I always go back to this every single week, but I will talk about little fires everywhere. (laughs) Again. I have my reference. No. Right. (laughs) And you need to watch it. 
Phoebe. So basically, there is a point where Reese Witherspoon's character, and then you've got Kerry Washington, who's the main black female character. Your two BFFs. And, yeah, and my two BFFs on Instagram. And then, you know, Reese is basically reaching out. Reese is a wealthy, affluent woman, reaching out, being like, oh, if you ever need some money, like, you can always come and clean my house. Um, oh. And then it's all a bit awkward. But then eventually, Kerry Washington's daughter makes friends with Reese Witherspoon's children. So she's like, okay, cool. I'll come and do some work in your house. And then Reese Witherspoon is doing that weird Karen thing where they always try to be friends with their maid. And Kerry Washington is like, white ladies always want to be friends with their maid. But then it turns out that Kerry Washington has actually got money. She's a very successful artist from New York. She was just kind of running away from her past. Okay. And Reese Witherspoon is horrified by this. Like, oh, you're not the charity case that I thought you were. Right. It's not like, oh, get it, girl. Yes, pal. It's not like yeah, that. It's like, and no embarrassment about like, oh, I assumed that you were. <laughs> I assumed that you were destitute. Yes. And so that is the assumption that a lot of people are more comfortable with. There is a certain dynamic that people are comfortable with. And there is a certain default that people want to go to. When I say people, I ultimately mean we live in a white supremacist society, even if you yourself are not a white supremacist. And I know that I've mentioned the noble call. I also put it on our Instagram by that Irish drag queen, Panty Bliss. But I do really recommend it because I think as a good foundation point, it is so meaningful. And again, just to kind of double down on those points as we're regurgitating our favorite things. But she says in that speech, you know, looking out at this audience, you are all homophobic. And hopefully some of you are only a little bit homophobic. And hopefully some of you are interested in not being homophobic, but how could you not be? Because we grow up in a a homophobic society. We grow up in a society where white is the default and we grow up in a society where heteronormativity is the default as well. So those defaults are me. I am white, I'm straight, I'm middle-class. I've had a very lovely life. And all I can do at this point is learn because it's an adjustment when you realize that other people are not the default in the way that you are. Yes, but also what people have to realize is that other people still have good lives. I've had a great yes, life. Of course. No, of course. But do you know what? No, I- but that's the, the normal thinking. It's like, oh, I've had a great life. This person who isn't like me or like my friends has had a tough life. Yes. Yeah, there are some people that have had a tough life. But a lot of, you know, black people are not a monolith. We all have very different experiences. Yeah. Take a second to examine your intentions, because if you are only comfortable with like reaching out to your black colleague because it's like, I just want to commiserate with you, perhaps do not. Don't reach out to your colleague because you feel that you have to. Mm. I've had some very uncomfortable conversations where people have reached out to me. How are you feeling? How are things going? And then I say, you know, it's been really tough. It's definitely impacted my sleep and made me more anxious. And they don't know what to say back. Yeah, because they want you to say, fine. I don't know what they want. but Thank you for checking in. You're yeah. so kind. That's so amazing. Thanks for checking in. No, don't check in. Leave You're me a good alone. ally. <laughs> yeah, just go away. Just leave me alone. Don't check in with me just so you can tell people you checked in with me. Yeah. 
And that's the thing, that that is ultimately the point I was going to make. Someone that I'm friends with on Instagram put up a thing that I thought was really funny and I thought was really on the nose. And I actually replied to her and I said, this is hilarious, even though I know it's not supposed to be. But it's similar to what I know that you have said on the platform before, where it's like, as you're looking to reach out to people right now to check in on your quote unquote black friends, consider that they might not consider you a friend. If it's taken up until now in your friendship to be like, oh my God, I want to be anti-racist. I really want to take conscious steps to dismantle the white supremacist patriarchy that we all live under. You probably have been quite a burden to your black friend or your brown friend or your friend of whatever ethnicity up until now. If it's taken global protests for you Mm. to feel any level of engagement with this movement. Also, I mean, it's such a tricky one because there are black people. I feel this whole thing is a lot easier for me because I engage with these topics. Mm. I mean, it's still very, very tough for me, but, you know, these are not topics I shy away from. And so in my professional life, I am out of the closet as a black person. (laughs) I don't know if I'm allowed to use that term. So LGBTQ people holler at your girl, but I'm out of the closet as a black person. Mm-hmm. But you've got some black people at work that are in the closet. So now imagine this person is like desperately suppressing any parts of their black identity at work. You've got global protests happening and then you've got colleagues asking them, oh, so what do you think? That person might have not even developed their opinions. Yeah, I think that there's been a lot of interesting developments. It's funny, there is someone I used to know some time ago who was very, was I guess, I don't want to use that phrase in the closet. I don't think it's mine to co-opt that phrasing in the way that you have because I can't speak to where she was at mentally about her own identity. But I remember having a conversation and this was very early on in my own kind of dipping a toe into race and systemic racism and what that looked like. And it was very much so like, an initiative led by myself, if that makes sense. It was stuff that I was seeing on the internet and I was like, I'm interested in this. I was trying to have this conversation and I remember her telling me, oh no, reverse racism is real. And I was thinking, oh man, I really didn't think it was. This is so weird. But you, as a black woman, you're telling me that it's real and I feel like I'm misunderstanding what the dynamics are here. And I remember being like, oh, just shut up about it then. You obviously don't know anything, like to myself. And Obviously, there's a certain amount, as you said, you're discovering your own identity, you're formulating your own narrative. Maybe you're unlearning things that you've been taught, whatever the case may be. Ultimately, for anyone in any kind of quandary about this or any confusion, there is no such thing as reverse racism. You cannot be racist against white people. I will be happy to discuss this at length if anyone needs a clarification on that. But now, with everything going on, she is very clear on her rhetoric that she is proud and she is disgusted at everything that's going on. Basically, she has found the identity that you are talking about here, right? And I wonder sometimes if it's like, what catalyzed that process for you? And do you ever think about a conversation with me? And do you ever think like, oh man, like I I was wrong on that one? Or does it just become a thing of that part of me got left behind? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I've had friends, you know, black friends, African friends who would literally say to you, reverse racism exists. Mm -hmm. And then through the course of the friendship with me, their views changed. Right. And especially black people who are privileged, and I don't know your friend or any, any of her background, but a lot of the time, especially black people who are privileged, 
we sometimes convince ourselves that we have more power than we actually do. Right. It's very traumatizing to feel like, oh, I have no power. It's very traumatizing to accept that, oh, wow, I cannot impact Phoebe's life in the way that she could potentially impact my life over time. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really traumatizing thing to accept. And that's why we say that reverse racism doesn't exist because racism equals power. And all the data shows us that black people have no power collectively. So I think when people are on that train of thought of, oh, reverse racism does exist, I feel it's the equivalent of working people that bend over backwards to defend the billionaire class. Yes. Those people, like, you know, they want to feel like, oh, no, I am a part of this elite. Oh, I do have this power. Oh, Mm -hmm. no. Okay. When we talk about racism, we're not talking about opinions. Everyone can have a prejudiced opinion. Everyone can be biased but not everybody can yield that power over other people in a way that leads to black women in the UK and in the US dying at higher rates of childbirth. Mm -hmm. You know, 40% of black graduates in the UK not having graduate jobs compared with 20% of white graduates. Lack of black leadership in your corporate organizations. Lack of black academics. Who has Mm -hmm. had a black teacher? So there are levels to this conversation. And that's why I think all of us should take the time to take a step back and read and learn rather than approaching this from an emotional perspective, which is, oh, reverse racism exists. No, it does not. It's really hard sometimes to convince people that this is a systemic situation. (laughs) Yeah, I think as well that it's a good point to perhaps clarify then that if you are saying to your mate, like, hey, like, I'm not racist, am I? And your friend who is black or brown or, again, whichever ethnicity is saying to you, no, mate, don't worry about it. You're definitely not. That doesn't mean that you aren't. It means that one Mm. person thinks you aren't. You still may have to sit with yourself and examine, like, different prejudices you may have and different thought processes that you may have and different biases that you may have. Obviously, a lot of us are thinking about how could we be better allies? And I think this goes well beyond that conversation between black people and white people. It's a much broader conversation. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm super excited for us to welcome our first podcast guest. Yes! So we're really excited to welcome Asad Dunna, founder of The Unmistakables, a consultancy that is making diversity everyone's business and former director of communications for Pride in London. I'm super excited for you to be here. One of the things that Phoebe and I have been talking about, you know, just against this backdrop of like Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, you know, and I've been kind of triggered by Asian people. Yeah. And how they're they're responding to some of this. I think it's an opportunity for us to really have a discussion around how those of us that are categorized within the BAME umbrella, Mm. like how can we be better allies? And so that's why you're here. Tell us. So Jules, like amazing to have you on and uh, I have you on. I'm not on, I'm on, not on my podcast, I'm on yours. <laughs> Plug for a podcast that I do called The Speak Easier. It's available on Spotify and Apple. <laughs> we had a conversation for background for people listening. Jules and I went to uni together because we're educated because we're BAME and Jules and I had a conversation. <laughs> we had a conversation. I remember so vividly. I think we were like at Yo Sushi or Wagamama somewhere in Westfield and you said to me in these words asad the problem with brown people is you're not proud of your heritage 
And I went, what do you mean? And she went, well, look at it. Like, you guys are complicit. Like, you guys want to be white. And it really stuck with me because you're right. And when people ask me about what is the role of Asians right now, like it's BAME, which is a problematic term we can unpick as we go. The fact is that Asian people have struggled to find their place. And if you think about a spectrum of inclusion in inverted commas, and you've got white over here and you've got black over here, you've got Asian like washing around in between because the acceptance comes from being white and conforming within white circles. And there's no strong black culture that we're proud of in the same way that you have. And the way I've said it to people around me is brown people don't have a Beyonce. We haven't got someone where we look to and go, they're a cultural icon in their own right that's making culture that people are proud to be part of. And Priyanka Chopra, not. Uh, I mean, no. I, well, I don't. I, I think. I mean, she been, married a Jonas Brother, guys. So I think she's doing pretty well for herself. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, you can I'm, you can look at that, but. but. Joking. <laughs> to be clear, that was a joke. Um, so, Asad, I'm interested to ask you a question around that because certainly when I've had conversations with black friends, I know that an issue that arises is sometimes when you categorize someone as you know being from Africa, for example, that the response will be, well, Africa is a continent. And do you think that part of the issue is when we talk about Asian, that that is so open to interpretation? And I know that you've mentioned already that BAME is a, a problematic term in and of itself. Jules has actually educated me a bit on that already. But when someone does say, oh, yeah, well, you know, like Asian people aren't like proud of their heritage. Do you think, well, do you want to be a bit more specific or is it Um, something that at this point rolls off your back? It's a good question. It rolls off my back a little bit. But I think nowadays, and particularly in the last five years, we've seen a real focus of uh, diversity in organizations, in marketing of people saying, we want to target the black community. We want to target the Asian community. We want to target the BAME community more broadly. And the struggle and the problem with that is that it doesn't do justice to the reality. It doesn't get people really understanding what's going on inside those communities. So when I say I'm Asian, I'm Indian, I'm Muslim Indian, and I guess the question is, what identity marker do you put forward first? And I think for a lot of people who are Muslim, they say they're Muslim first. That's their primary marker. But for a lot of black people, they say they're black first. Mm -hmm. And no one really knows that. It's for the individual to work that out. It's when businesses, it's when brands, it's when media try to understand it all. But there's no nuance in it because by default of being mainstream, they can't understand the reality of what's happening for people in their experiences. It's interesting when you sort of ask about being specific about Asian culture. So my understanding, when I think about Asian in the UK, because Asian is different in the US. Sure. Asian in the UK is the Indian community, the Pakistani community, and the Bengali community. Mm-hmm. Those are like our three main groups in the UK. Yeah, I would, I would add Sri Lankan to that okay. as well, and maybe Bangladeshi as well. Okay. Um, That's so interesting to me because my husband is British and he says the same. And again, I bang on about this all the time, but I grew up in Ireland. I had a very white Catholic upbringing because there wasn't anybody else who was anything else. And so by virtue of that, Jules, the US Asian categorization that you're referring to there is very much so what I think of when I hear Asian. I think of China, I think of Japan, I think of those Eastern Asian countries. 
And mm. so I guess it speaks to, Asad, what you're saying there about what I've absorbed from the media and what the media have maybe decided what that term means and my absorption of that. Yeah, and you have to remember that the media dictates the narrative. That's why BAME has become such a big deal. I've just been doing some data analysis around the use of the term BAME and tracking it over time to see what's happened during lockdown, after lockdown, since George Floyd was murdered. And the mainstream have picked up this term BAME in a really big way that Mm -hmm. if unless we stop it, unless we challenge it, unless we push back, it will just become the de facto. And I think in Britain in particular, and BAME is a British term, the data shows it. It's not used in the US. The reason why Brits use BAME is because they're scared to say black. Thank you. Thank you. And that's why you're on this podcast, because you're not scared to say black, right? And also, when we talk about, okay, yes, there's a segment of society and sort of Asian sits under that. When you think about black, think about the countries, the experiences that sit under black, right? You've got Africa, you've got the Caribbean, you've got Latin black, and we're all thrown under black. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that Asian is a way more specific term than in the, the term, UK. In the in UK. The, in the yeah, UK. in the UK, than the term black. Like we've just all been socialized into black. Mm-hmm. But his, his, but my his, black is very different as a Ugandan first generation British black woman than somebody who's four generations British Jamaican. Totally. And that's why I always remember that conversation, Juliet, because as a second generation British Indian that grew up middle class, like we grew up in a suburb of London. And I joke that that's the life that all my now early to mid 30 year old friends want or are aspiring to. And when I think about my dad as an Indian man coming from very working class India to where we've gotten to, I think like we've transcended a lot of barriers there, but we've done that as Indians. And we've Mm -hmm. done that to some extent as conforming to white stereotypes or playing a different tune or having to bend or having to fit in. And in part that has come because of the way the British ruled India and what we see as good, what we see as successful, what we see as rich, but all of the residue is still there. And and I see it in my mum and how she responds and elements around trust, elements around business. And I'm really getting to that now as I'm running my own business and kind of how we work and where do we fit in the world. But yeah, I think it's spot on. And the bit I was just writing about was we won an award at the Great British Business Awards last year called BAME Business of the Year. And it was the first time that they did that award. And I thought, and it was our first award. And I thought, that's amazing. I'm really pleased to now say we're an award-winning consultancy, not just a consultancy. But Mm. we won a BAME award. Like, Mm. what does that actually mean? And so I worked quite hard to make sure we won, in inverted commas, mainstream awards because I don't want to be pigeonholed. But also because I know now how restricting that term can be and i think that's why it's on us especially people who are within bane but aren't black to say can you just stop calling us all the same thing because (laughs) you're not paying service to the black experience which is what we're shining a light on right now yeah and if we look at the uk specifically in the 60s 70s the term black was the term for everyone So you have people's parents, so Indian people, and their parents will say they're black. And at first I was like, 
a bit confused. And this kind of came a bit to the surface online this week where, um, you know, one of the white feminists I follow, she posted that black square in solidarity with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And then underneath, she said, I'm donating to the South Hall Black Sisters in solidarity with, 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 I don't know. But, but why? Okay, with what? George Floyd. <laughs> with George okay. Floyd. This is problematic for me because the Asian community is notoriously anti-Black and we are trying to fight anti-racism and anti-Blackness right now. And that's why an example of why you can't throw everybody in the BAME bucket. Yeah. So what we're doing right now and the only way we're going to progress is if we challenge and break structures. So the structure of BAME is a mainstream construct to refer to everyone who is not white. So funding pools, the way that's all set up is under BAME. If you think about BAME networks in organizations, if you think about BAME groups, BAME sports, I'm not saying they're bad things, but I'm saying structurally they're not right for what we need to do as society because mm-hmm. we need to be focusing on the individual difficulties for each of those groups. But I so, do feel it's a bad thing. I think you have to be careful because if I compare it to LGBT plus as a term and the work that I did around Pride, what we realized is that the experiences of each of those letters are very different. Mm. But in terms of sheer volume, you need the collective of that group in order to make a stand and in order to be counted. Because if you broke down each individual letter, then there's an argument that they're not as powerful as they can be when they come together. So the example I'll give you is Pride came from a black trans woman and over the years has been co-opted by white commercial gay men. So pride has become perceived as a very white gay male thing. So how do you ensure that the trans experience is seen and is heard? Well, the easier way to do it is to get people who are lesbian, gay and bi to co-opt that mission and that struggle and work on it together. So the way for BAME to work, I believe, is to get all the letters to work together. But the thing is, they can't all work together right now. Because as you said, Jules, there's a lot of anti-blackness within the Asian community. And then the double bind of that is lots of Asians are making this about themselves and their struggles. And actually, it's about taking a step back and saying, this is not my individual struggle. Yes, I can identify with structural racism, but I have profited from it because I understand the system. And in my personal experience as an Asian man, as an Indian Mm -hmm. man, I know that I have worked more in white circles and I've understood them. And perhaps I haven't been more true to being Indian. And that's now my own thing, but that's got nothing to do about Black Lives Matter. It's just something that this movement has made me realize. And and that's my specific point. When we think about, and I read the Runnymede report, The Colour of Money, and it basically said that the Indian community has 85p to every white person's pound. The Pakistani community, I think, I had around 50p. Mm -hmm. The Caribbean community has 10p. And the African community, which, I mean, we're like new, because a lot of us are first maximum two generations in this country, the African community has 5p, Yeah. right? So that's why I'm very passionate about us being very specific. And if I think about just India has 1 billion people, I don't know about the numbers in the UK, but there is enough of a volume where people can, you know, when they came to the UK, where they could raise money within the community so everybody could become British, right? The Indian community moves very strategically in this country. So if you just have a BAME 
grant, yeah, it's very unlikely that a British Ugandan can even tap into that because well, yes, we're all black, but like the group thinking is not really there. So people look at us as like this massive group, but you know, it's just not the reality of it. So the black community is at a disadvantage when it comes to tapping into BAME opportunities. I, I totally agree with you. And I think from where I'm sitting, work needs to be done to dismantle the BAME thing. But where I would say a term like BAME is right now is every single group you've just mentioned is still under a pound. So collectively, if all of the groups are working together to reach parity, it could arguably be more powerful, but you have to give the rates of everyone in between to say this, everyone needs to work together. And I think you're spot on in culturally saying that the Indian community does move more strategically, I think in part because of the way that the empire has played out and Mm. the role that British people played within the Indian continent is different to in the African continent. And I think part of that comes through in slavery and part of that comes through in the natural resources and a whole load of other cultural identity markers that were processed differently by Indian people than they were in African countries. Yeah. And so even in Africa, so I'm East African and in Uganda and in Kenya, you have a lot of Indians, Mm, right? Just like in West Africa, you have a lot of Lebanese. So in East Africa, Indians are the merchant class. Yeah. And, you know, one of my aunts is married to an Indian guy, unfortunately was disowned by his family because of it. And so that's the challenge because even when we live in close proximity together, you still have such a barrier. So you can be a friend, so you can be a brother, but you can't be a brother-in-law. Yeah. And, right? and that, that's where the whole, the, the argument that I've seen play out around anti-blackness in the Asian community comes down to the marriage conversation, which mm. is helpful because it proves the point. However, anti-blackness shouldn't exist beyond the realms of marriage. So it, it shouldn't be that someone has to get married for you to accept a black person and that be the marker of acceptance. It should be that there shouldn't be any anti-blackness more broadly in in, the, mm-hmm. in in broader society. And that's where I think there's a lot of work to be done. Um, and I think it's also different in native BAME countries than it is in BAME communities within spaces where ethnic minorities are the minority group so i think it's different being a british indian than it is being an indian in india mm-hmm. if that makes sense that makes sense but what do you think about what's the difference here in the uk i would like to think and i'm coming from a place of privilege in my middle class upbringing is from what i remember growing up i didn't actively feel like we were anti black but then i think passively we may have been because of some of the language that was used by my parents or and white your own family. caste system and your own caste well system. well it's slightly different for me because i'm not i'm i'm not hindu so oh, okay. I, we we don't sit within a caste system but we do have different groups and now when i reflect back i look at it and i think the bit for me that really has struck out is when i went to warwick and i found the first year really difficult because i was all of a sudden the only brown person in a group of people and the the friends that I had. And I remember the conversation with my sister really clearly where she said, go and find the international people. That's where you'll feel more at home. And mm-hmm. then I found all of my Kenyan friends, my Trini friends who made me feel so at home. And my Kenyan friends are brown. They are black. 
my Trini friends are white and black. Like there's a real mix. And I just felt like for me, I don't feel like I'm anti-black, but that's because I think I took an intentional step to step out of white spaces. To ask a question about that, a little earlier on in the podcast, Juliet and I were talking about how white people can often be most comfortable with non-white or people of color when they express a kind of a a self-loathing, as it were. And that dynamic then is comfortable for whiteness as the standard because it's like, oh, so much in a turmoil, I hate their skin, you know, that kind of rhetoric that I'm sure does apply to some people. It's like, oh, I used to scrub my skin to see if I could be white, this kind of thing. And when people are very much so comfortable and proud of and locked in with their heritage, that it's a bit like, oh, no, 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 I didn't mean those kind of immigrants. I meant the apologizing for being here immigrant. <laughs> and when you talk about then your experience in Warwick and being like, let me remove myself from this pretty white space where suddenly I am the only brown person. Do you think that there was an element of that where you felt actually I'm more aligned with the international students because they are unapologetic? While he thinks I can give my view on that because I had the exact same experience. Go on. So I left London where I was happy, where teachers invested in me, where my life was good. And then I went to Warwick and I was the only black person in my faculty. So I don't think it's really just a race thing because in my school in London, it wasn't super diverse, but we were all in London. So I think our attitudes were very different. Mm. So I go to Warwick. I'm the only black person in my faculty. I studied English literature. I did not know what being black meant to other people Mm. until I was thrown into that environment. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, all of my friends were international as well. I think that has something to do with Warwick. And I think it has something to do with how institutions that make more money off of international people, i.e. universities, treat international people better because there's a commercial gain. For me anyway, what I really take away from it, and I think to answer your question, Phoebe, around the self-loathing stuff is it's about generations. Mm -hmm. So the international people around us in Warwick were first gen. If you take the marker of being and settling in British as your marker of generations, then they were Mm -hmm. first gen. So they were very proud of where they were from. They wanted to celebrate where you were from. Warwick actively encouraged that through One World Week, which was the largest student international fair where a lot of international people met and where I volunteered and, and ended up finding a career in PR marketing. But I think the bigger point is actually around environment and the environment that you're in, because for me, like leaving Warwick and then going into a field like PR, that's when I was like, I don't understand because I found my kind of international set, but this environment is really not for me because I don't see anyone like me in this. And that was, I think, after eight to nine years in the industry, I got to a point where I thought I have to change my environment because I can't keep going into that space. Mm -hmm. And then by setting up the unmistakables, that was like, there's enough people I know who are like me who are having this experience right? that I'm going to change this. And so I think the environment has so much to do and so much to account for in the way people feel about themselves. Absolutely. But in terms of, I think when you're so young and you're in that environment, a lot of the things that we've experienced of going into work, we never thought of. From a lay person's perspective, I would think, oh my gosh, media, PR, it must be so glamorous, obviously. I hear from friends that it is very much so not the case, but I also assume that there must be a degree of 
diversity just inherent in that because there is so much creativity within black communities within asian communities that i'm like yeah but it's it's a there's there's a difference between creativity and creatives so creatives right. conform in my view to a stereotype because the type of creativity that is valued by the structure is different and what i talk about now and and i think again you're right julia it's about age and it's about as you grow up you just work it out and you think what am i going to stand for and what am i going to care about and i think that's where i've really taken that as my business like you say making diversity everyone's business it's like what i set my mission out to be about because i think it always has been in a really implicit way when i think back to warwick when i think back to my experiences of life and that doesn't mean that you need someone in HR who runs a BAME network to tell you about Ramadan or about <laughs> uh, Diwali. It means like you have to be culturally aware to what's going on. And partially that comes from London, but partially that comes from the fact that there are more people from different backgrounds in our country. What I would just add is I think, and I don't know because I'll, my parents or my mum would never admit it, but I think what certainly my parents, I was just about you, Jules, but what they went through just in everyday life in the 70s and 80s, I think in some way is playing out in the corporate world for people in their 20s and 30s who are second generation. I think there's a certain element of microaggressions and outright racism and covert racism, probably more covert racism than outright, mm. that is festering in the system. And I'll give you a story or an example of where this has played out for me. Like when I was, I think like in my mid-teens, my parents had a new kitchen put in and we had a kitchen and a utility room, like back to the bougie middle-class life, right? We had two rooms. Yeah, Yeah, the dream. (laughs) But my mum wanted to build the kitchen in the utility room because it was in the corner of the house. So it was further away from the kitchen being in the heart of the home. And I look back and I'm like, I can't understand why we did that. Like it was less comfortable. Now we have or she has like two kitchens and I'm still trying to get through it. And then I remember a story about how when they lived in London, they lived in a flat, people would complain about her cooking and they would complain about the smell. Um, And they didn't, like, you know, you couldn't get a chicken tikka masala ready meal from Morrison's back then. It was like this exotic thing. So that, like how you take on comments like that and how mm -hmm. they weave into your being, I think played out in where the kitchen is in my like birth home oh yeah and I, those small things i think are playing out now for people like us juliet who are going through the workplace and going, actually this isn't as equal as we thought and my like my parents came all this way for us to have a better life but actually when i went back to india in december and met a colleague in the or not december two years ago i worked for a global company i met someone who was basically the equivalent of me in india and i was like your life is great you've got cooks cleaners a driver yeah. like everything's done for you and you also don't have to face racism in the workplace. <laughs> and middle-class <laughs> India is booming. Like, what, what? How can we be better allies to one another? I don't want us to be in a situation where the black community fights and then the dividend goes to other communities that just sit under the BAME umbrella when there are specific outcomes that need to be addressed. Yeah, and I don't have the answer for you Jules okay I only invited you here I wanted the answer I'll give give a small story so a friend of mine who's British Pakistani background has a black colleague who's been very traumatized with everything that's going on and is like posting about it on the internal system and then you know my friend who's Asian was like said to me you know what Jules I'm upset because this girl at work who's a friend of mine has ghosted me 
And she's ghosted me because I was silent all week when she was sharing this at work and she expected me to be an ally. But I've been dealing with my own trauma and this stuff has triggered me as well. You know, my point was, yes, it has triggered you as well. But if you see that video of George Floyd being killed, can you step out of that trauma and in that moment be an ally to your friend? I think you're asking two questions here because you mm. said, how do you be a better ally? And then I think the question you're asking is, is it okay to stay silent, especially if you are within the catch-all of BAME? So the first point for me on being a better ally, and I say this about the LGBT community because I have a problem with the word ally and it's, it's a mm. passive word and it's a wartime word. So why do we have to go into that sort of language in the way that we're speaking? And actually, a lot of people don't agree with me on this, but I stick on it, which is what if you talk about an accomplice rather than an ally? Because an accomplice takes an active role in someone else's life. So mm. I think that is a mindset shift to be active in the way that you are supporting and speaking up. And I think if you want to be a better accomplice, especially if you are someone within the BAME community as your Pakistani friend, is you have to say something. Like silence is not an option because like all the slogans show, silence is compliance. But what you do say has to be considered and what you do say has to be grounded in the understanding of that person's experience. Not to say my experience is the same and I get it and this is my world, which I think is what a lot of people have done. But instead you say, can you tell me how I can be the best support and how do I speak up and how do I use my voice and my platform to the point about the influence you talked about? How do I use this in a way that's going to change hearts and is it going to change minds? And I think it's a real shame just to play devil's advocate for your friend. Maybe she didn't feel safe in a corporate context because she didn't know what would happen. And that says more about the corporation and the environment and the culture than perhaps about her. But yeah. I don't know enough to reach a no, conclusion. But we had a discussion about it. And that's what she said. She said, you know, I have spoken up and I've been ignored. Obviously, Asian girl over there, no one's interested in what she's got to say. And she said she's been traumatized by some of the experiences she's had when she's tried to advocate. And ultimately, we have to unite against white supremacy and be anti-racist. And that's what I really want. But then I've always been so against BAME. Mm. And just seeing the way it's playing out right now, it does upset me. And I said to my friend, like, when we want to do this podcast, you immediately sprang to mind, Asad. You're probably the only Asian person I know that I think would stand up for me. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. I wouldn't expect an Asian person to stand up for me. Wow. I would probably expect Phoebe to stand up for me more. And obviously that's a result of the structure I and the privilege. That. I have the social capital to do so. and I. Think but, that- I do, but what about me? Do I have the social capital to do so? And I do so. And that's my problem. I'm talking about my peers, my Bane peers. Mm-hmm. I will stand up for them. I will advocate, but they're not doing the same for me. Well, I think that there are two things going on here. And I think that ultimately, yes, you are correct. But if we look at the example that you just gave of me, I objectively have social capital. I am white. I'm straight. I'm married. I'm middle class. I've got double barrel surname. I'm killing it Mm -hmm. superficially. And so it doesn't matter what context you put me in, even if I am not me, if you use those markers, I have the capital where I can speak up. Whereas when you speak about yourself saying, but I speak up, you are somewhat of a, you, you are and you aren't, but you are quote unquote an anomaly because you. I'm not an anomaly because black women always fight. Black women always stand up. 
But I think, Juliet, like what I'm thinking now is that minority groups should stand together, but you have to be on the same footing to realize that you've got everything to lose and nothing to lose. And I think I was speaking in stereotypes, but I think within the Asian community, people feel like they've got too much to lose to stand up and be counted. And so they don't. And you see it in Pretty Patel. She conforms so hard to what mm-hmm. she thinks she should do in order to hold that position that she's not willing to stand up for her black peers. I don't have anything to lose. It's not, I, I like, again, from an outsider's perspective, <laughs> I can't mm. say that, you, obviously you do, but it's your moral compass has allowed you to say, I'm willing to take the risk on it. And I'm willing to take the risk that I will lose. And you are right, because every statistic, every study shows that, again, it's black women who will come out and vote. And it is black women who will bite their tongue and vote for Hillary or vote for Biden because they see the bigger picture. So you are absolutely correct in that assessment. But I also think that the moral compass that is driving you to speak up and do the right thing is not universal. And when Assad speaks then about people weighing up, well, how much do I have to lose? Maybe for them, rightly or wrongly, things don't necessarily fall in such a way. Yeah, what I think it is, I think it's scarcity mindset. And I think that because we know it's one BAME person in, one BAME person out, one BAME organization in, one BAME organization out, one BAME award to give, right? And that makes us feel like I need to ride that BAME train Mm. until I get on the board of this organization. And that's what leads to this kind of lack of interest. I think it's a manifestation of anti-blackness. Why would I care about Jules? And then I also think that there is this scarcity mindset where we feel, oh, if I lose this, I might not get the opportunity again. Mm. So there's definitely a lot of things at play. But because, like you say, there's power in numbers, if we don't find a way to break down these barriers, it's going to be really difficult, like you said, for all of us to get to that one pound. I think that's it. And it's just, I'll, I'll give you some of the numbers that I've been reading. So week on week, Media news using the term BAME is around 200 stories a week. And that's kind of leveled out around COVID. Then lockdown happened and it dipped because everyone was worried about toilet paper and sourdough bread. And then as soon as it was seen that people who were Black, Asian and from minority and this backgrounds were being affected and were dying, you had 400 articles. You had a 100% increase like wow. off the bat in a week. And then you had Jon Snow, mainstream broadcasters saying the word BAME in people's living room. Hmm. And all of a sudden you saw the Google trend spike go, what does BAME mean? What does BAME mean? What does BAME mean? Because people just don't know. And if you're in it and you've been battling this battle for as long as we have, Jules, you've known it and you've been battling within it. And then George Floyd happened and it went from 400 articles to 1,000. So you went 200, 400, 1,000. So it's now in people's mindsets. We cannot go back from that. Mm -hmm. People are saying, what is BAME? What is BAME? What is BAME? They're asking, we're having this conversation. Now we're at such a fragile point where, and I've seen this within the LGBT community, where if the letters don't stay together in terms of mindset and solidarity and allyship, they can't drive the change because finally you've got the platform to talk about it. But the reality is within it, the A and the M and the E need to know how to step back right now 
out and go, this is about black lives and this is about how we support black lives. This is me earning my 85p. I'm going to give some of that to the 5p, not try and take it from the pound because we all level up and it's you're bang on. The scarcity mindset is a large part of it. And I think it is a lot of shame within the Asian community about the gratitude of being here and this like working class to middle class mindset of aspiring to a life that's been driven through parental love in inverted commas being put down on people. And, I, and I'm saying that from my own experience, like we were trained and educated to aspire, mm-hmm. but we have to step back from that because it's not but serving aspire, the whole community. But let's be specific, aspire to whiteness. One of the things I saw coming out of the US was around Mindy Kaling and Never Have I Ever. And they were talking this about this, this. this. Do you know this Mindy Kaling woman, Phoebe? Juliet, I'm white. I'm not stupid. <laughs> what? I just found out about her. Have you heard of Mindy Kaling? <laughs> this, you... woman, this woman blows my mind. Me and my husband were just Googling, Googling. We're like, please, can we find Mindy Kaling with an Asian person? Oh, I know. With a brown person. Can we there find a picture of her? pictured next to a brown person yeah and and there you go and the narrative that came out of never have i ever where they went quite hard on talking about south asian representation on screen and they went quite hard about talking about the first time that you saw a teen romance being played with a brown protagonist but yes she falls in love with two white men yes it's all about the caricature of her culture and when i went deep into what the asian community thought about it a lot of it came from this like well why are we having to conform to white standards where's that come from and it's because hypothesis i don't know if it's true because i don't know mindy kaling but she's had to build her career by doing that Mm -hmm. and so she hasn't built career out of brown culture in the same way that a lot of black people can make a career out of black culture because it's more ownable and it's more commercial this conversation has made me think really hard about that scarcity mindset i think it is there and that's something to unpick a bit more so this was so much fun thank you so much for coming on with us thank you for having me it's I been really enjoyed it brilliant. and it was so educational for me as well thank you really really so much you're um, welcome it's you want good to, to see you give your again, podcast yeah. a plug yeah the speak easier is a place where we try and make diversity everyone's business so we invite on guests from the world of business arts and culture to talk about what they're doing so we had june sarpong on last week and it's well worth having a listen because she has written the book on diversity and is absolutely sensational perfect and that can be found on spotify apple Podcasts, or your usual places yep or the (laughs) perfect thank you so much asad and thank you everyone for listening we will speak to you soon bye bye Bye.